Hey, good morning, church. It's good to be with you all. Thanks for being here. My name is Brady. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I am uh, the interim student pastor, ministering to RSM across the hallway in the first service. So um, thank you, RSM parents, for you know, entrusting your kiddos to me and to the ALT uh, RSM students. You, you only thought that you could get away from me this morning, but alas, it was not God's will for you this morning. Well, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Perhaps you've heard that from a friend, maybe a door-to-door evangelist. Maybe they follow that up with Jeremiah 29, 11. That sounds really nice, doesn't it? It sounds really good. It gives us the and fuzzies. God has a one, loves you. It has a wonderful plan for your life. Questions about that statement abound. What I wonder is your definition of wonderful. Is it the same as God's? If it's different than God's, are you okay with that? If it is true that God has a wonderful plan for your life, how can you discover what it is? Should you be trying to discover what it is? In an effort to discover God's will or God's plan for your life, can you thwart it by making bad decisions or perhaps even good decisions? These are a couple of things that I would like, us for to, like for us to consider this morning. Well, when I was in college, I lived in what we semi-affectionately referred to as the Christian bubble. Now, plenty of schools have the same idea or the same concept. But what was a bit unique about where I was in 2009 was that the school that I went to had 50,000 students, and there was a community college in town that had 15,000 students. So put all together, if about 5% of the student body was actively taking their Christian walk seriously, which is a low number, but a possible number, uh, th- that would mean there would be about 3,000 believers out there who were involved in local ministries, who were committed to local churches, and uh, that's, that's as big or bigger than some private schools. There's a lot of believers, enough of a crowd to kind of create an insider culture and language. It was a normal occurrence for one of those ministries to have 10,000 students coming on a Tuesday night to worship God, Bible study. It was awesome. I loved it. It was a great period of time in my life that God used in tremendous ways, and I'm very, very thankful for it. But it had its drawbacks. It had its drawbacks, one of which was getting indoctrinated into Christianese. Has anyone ever heard of Christianese? Christianese? Christianese words and phrases like, do life together, which translation was hang out with regularly. Uh, give it up to God was another one. And that translation, stop thinking and worrying about it. Uh, and, uh, quote, that's not my spiritual gift. Translation, find someone else because I don't want to do it. And that might be a bit of a negative interpretation. Some people may not have been that uh, uh, full of cynicism. Uh, another big one uh, was something like, quote, I'm wanting to seek God's will or I want to be obedient to God's will or praying to God. God, show us your will. Or something along those lines. Well, for me, when I was in college, my big question or my big thought about God's will was not, God, how can I bring glory to you? What do you want to do in my life? My big question about God's will was, God, who do you want me to marry? Now, on the one hand, that's not the worst thing in the world to want, okay? I mean, it's good to find a wife. Psalm 18 says that it's a good thing if you find your spouse, find a wife. Uh, But for me, cards on the table... This was much more of an idol. It wasn't just a passing desire I had, but it was the thing that in practice kind of ruled my life, my thought life, my prayer life, all these things. My God, 
in college was not so much the God of the Bible, but a God of my own making that I had sort of made up in my own mind, uh, a magic eight ball God that I thought I could ask him a question, shake up the Bible a little bit and get a maybe generic answer. Anyone remember magic eight balls? They, they, they live on in our, our, our minds, not because they're very popular, but because they were in Toy Story, which came out in 1995. And I only tell you that because some of you are still stuck on the fact that I said I was in college in 2009. So I want to give you a little bit of perspective on time. I'm young, but I'm not that young. Okay, Toy Story, that's old. Some of you are very offended by that. I'm so sorry. Uh, thankfully, uh, I never used the most dreaded line in all of Christianese, which was, I talked to God and the Holy Spirit told me to break up with you. Now, we all hear that. We say, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that. But... Interestingly, how we think about that, how we think about someone saying, God told me to break up with you, or God told me to marry you, so forth and so on, how we think about that line is a big part of what I want to talk about today. Ladies, picture this, uh, you're in college, maybe you're out of college, but you're at a coffee shop, and someone comes up to you and says, God told me that you are going to be my wife. Now, <laughs> laughing is one response. Another quick response would be, well, he failed to give me that message. Uh, but seriously, how do we go about determining if over-eager guy is right? Maybe God did tell him that. How would we know? Maybe he didn't. The question is, how do we know? How do we discern or decide, determine what is God's will, what's not God's will? I want to talk about this morning what it looks like to make decisions aligned with the will of God. And to start off, I want to talk about the will of God just in general, talk about that phrase, what do we mean by that? And then at the end, I want to walk us through a, a practical guide that I think will help us when we think about decision making. Uh, the first part, I hope, will inform how we think about the second part. I'm going to kind of stop and go through a couple of those throughout the talk. Well, I think for many of you in the room, I think and believe, I've seen it with my own two eyes, heard you talk about it, the desire to find the will of God comes from a very good place. It comes from a desire to simply obey him. Bravo. That's great. That's great that you would desire to obey God. Not all of you are as self-centered as I was when I was in college. But what do we even mean by the will of God? I'm going to be borrowing heavily this morning from Kevin DeYoung's excellent short book called Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will, and then in parentheses, or How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Writing in the Sky, etc. That actually is the title of the book. Kevin says that he uh, writes short books with long titles. He writes... I would like for us to consider that maybe we have difficulty discovering God's wonderful plan for our lives because, truth be told, he doesn't really intend to tell us what it is. And maybe we're wrong to expect him to. I remember the first time I read that years ago and I said, Kevin, tell me more. That's interesting. Well, the will of God is one of the most confusing phrases in all of Christianese. When we talk about it, we mean so many different things, and that's why it can be confusing. We speak of things happening according to God's will. We talk about being obedient to God's will. And other times we talk about finding the will of God. So the confusion, I think, starts there, using it in a variety of ways. And some of these are pretty genuine in, in the Bible. So let's talk about these. Way number one, we think about God's will. We talk about things happening according to God's will. Okay, God's will has multiple sides to it, as I'm saying. If, if I'm going to talk about side one a minute, and if that bothers you a little bit, just stick with me to side two, because they're both true. Okay, 
Side one of God's will, when we think about it, is God's will of decree. This refers to what God has ordained. Everything that happens is according to the will of God's sovereign decree. What God wills will happen, and what happens is according to God's will. Now, if God is good and all-loving and all-powerful and all-knowing, that is great news. That should encourage you this morning. If God isn't those things, if he isn't all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, then the idea that God decides everything and controls everything is a bit terrifying, and it should scare us. But if he is loving, caring, kind, just, that's great news. You say, can you give me a verse for that? Ephesians 1.11. I'm going to rattle off a lot of verses. I'll try to repeat them if you're, if you're writing them down. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things in this verse means everything. The good stuff, the bad stuff, the sad stuff, the scary stuff. God is not surprised nor is he thwarted by any of it. Matthew uh, 10, 29 through 30. Matthew 10, 29 through 30 says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. So God cares about the particulars. He's in the particulars. He knows the particulars. Abraham Kuyper is a famous theologian. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And I think old Abe sold God short a little bit here because he said there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence. There's not a, whole, there's not a square of, of existence anywhere that isn't in God's sovereign control. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is none other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose. What's the point? Simply put, God gets his way. You know that song we sing here uh, occasionally, you are God and I am not, you're God and I am not? That's us acknowledging that God gets his way, we don't. We're not the creator, we're not the sovereign, he is. We sometimes get our way. But we don't have sovereign control over all things the way God does. And that's why we sing that song. This speaks to one of my opening questions that I, that I poised to you all. You can't mess up God's will of decree. What he has said is going to happen is going to happen. What he has decreed will come to pass. If you're in Christ, if you've repented of your sin, and if you've trusted in Jesus for your salvation, that's the best news you'll ever hear. That God keeps his promises and does what he says he will do. If you're not, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't placed your faith and trust in Christ, that should be the most scary or disconcerting thing that you've ever heard, that God keeps his promises. Let's keep moving. Way number two, side number two of thinking about God's will, God points out the way. This is related to how we talk about us being obedient to God's will. This is God's will of desire. This reflects what God has commanded, what he desires for his creatures and for his people, or maybe put another way, how he would want us to live. If the will of decree is how things are, then the will of desire is how things ought to be. I think I might know what some of you are thinking. How can God decree all that will come to pass while also holding us, his human creatures, accountable 
uh, for our actions. This is the classic God's sovereignty and human responsibility question. The Bible clearly affirms both. God is sovereign, but he is not the author of sin. We are under his sovereignty, but we are not free from responsibility for our actions and for our decisions. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the peace of God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing so that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The will of God, his will of desire, means that we do what is pleasing in his sight. Another verse that you might look at is 1 John 2, 15 through 17. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. So back to our, our thought exercise at the beginning. Uh, back to overeager person, and we'll just we'll make this generic for guys or girls, whoever you are. Uh, the person who says God told him or her that you're going to be their husband and wife. How do you know the will of God? Well, the one thing we do, and the first thing we do, is we ask, has God expressly commanded or forbidden this in Scripture? Has he made his will of desire plain and clear to us. If you're a follower of Christ who has trusted in him, who is now a born-again believer, and this person says uh, that God told them you're going to be married, uh, if that person isn't a Christian, well, then for the time being at least, that is outside of God's will. He's laid that out in the Bible, and it's, it's clear. It's not the easiest thing in the world to just proof text, but and when we understand biblically what marriage is, which is a union meant to display the gospel and the forming of a lifelong partnership to pursue work and accomplish God's will, then that, that setup, that arrangement between a Christian and a non-Christian simply won't work. The Christian has following Christ as his north star, the thing that he or she is guiding and, and orients everything else in their life. The non-Christian doesn't. So you're not going to go in the same direction regarding your decision-making and the path of your life. Now, we all know stories that you might even be thinking of some in your mind. You might even be in this situation of this situation being redeemed. Uh, the Christianese word for this is evangelating, uh, by the way, just as an aside. Uh, but just because God chose in his grace to redeem a situation that was not according to his will doesn't mean that it's still in his will of desire. The fact that sometimes those situations where a Christian marries a non-Christian, the non-Christian becomes a believer and they live out a wonderful, uh, blessed, great marriage, the fact that that seems to work out doesn't mean that going against God's will was a good thing to begin with. These good outcomes are the exceptions, not the rule. So praise God that that works out, and I've seen it happen, and, I'm, and we celebrate the fact that God in his mercy can still work through flawed decisions. Of course, we affirm and believe that, but more often than not, that situation and others like it uh, tend to lead to immense frustrations for both parties. And I've seen it happen dozens of times with tremendous, tremendous heartbreak associated with uh, making that decision. Uh, I had an RSM student ask me like two weeks ago, hey, I really like this girl. And, and I said, okay, like, is she, is she a Christian? Does she follow Jesus? And he said, well, you know, she believes in God. I said, man, I, I'm, I'm not telling you what to do. That's gonna, that might be tough for you. Like, I don't think that would be according to God's will. We're going to come back to that, uh, and I'll spell that out in more detail at the end of the talk. That'll suffice for now. So God gets his way, his will of decree. God points out the way, his, his will of desire. But does God have a specific plan or a will for your life? This is the way, number three, that we talk about God's will. What we're often looking for when we talk about this is God's will of direction. What does God want me to do with my life? 
Where should I live? What job should I take? Should I get married? These are the kind of questions that we ask when we're seeking God's will of direction. Does God have a secret will of direction that he expects us to figure out before we do anything? The answer, I believe, is no. Now, let me caveat that. Let's talk about that. Don't jump on me yet. Listen to the young here. Yes, God has a specific plan for your lives. Okay, put down the pitchforks. God has a specific plan for your life. And yes, we can be assured that he works things for our good in Christ Jesus. It's Romans 8, 28 and 29. And yes, looking back, we will often be able to trace God's hand in bringing us where we are. But while we, were, we are free to ask God for wisdom, he does not burden us with the task of divining his will of direction for our lives ahead of time. The second half of that sentence is crucial. God does have a specific plan for our lives, but it is not one that he expects us to figure out before we make a decision. If you don't hear anything this morning, hear that. God has a plan for you. It's wonderful, according to his definition of wonderful. But he doesn't expect you to figure it all out before you make a decision. DeYoung continues, Trusting in God's will of decree is good. Following his will of desire is obedient. Waiting for God's will of direction is a mess. It's bad for your life, harmful to your sanctification, and allows too many Christians to be passive tinkerers who strangely feel more spiritual the less they actually do. Ouch. The ouch was me. This con- the conventional way of understanding God's will, like it's a corn maze with one way out, I was in a corn maze uh, yesterday. I didn't actually go in it because Annie would have lost her mind. The understanding of God's will, like it's a corn maze with one way out, or like a bullseye with the center in the middle as God's will and second best as everywhere else, or like I said earlier, like a magic eight ball that we're supposed to wait until until a generic answer comes to us is not helpful. It's not good for our decision making, and in many circumstances, it's dishonoring to Christ. DeYoung mentioned several problems with this approach to finding the will of God or figuring out his will, and I'll share just three. Problem number one with this conventional approach is that we focus all or most of our attention on non-moral decisions. Micah 6.8, pretty popular verse around here. If you don't know, our pastor's name is Micah, so he likes Micah. Micah 6.8 says, uh, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice Love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Look, God cares about the details of your life. We've already referenced this. Acts 17 uh, talks about the fact that he predetermined where and when you'll live. That's 1726. However, these don't seem to be the most important issues for God. When we read through the Bible uh, on, on God's will of desire, we see a focus on things like moral purity, theological fidelity, compassion for the least of these, joy, faithfulness, love, worship. These are God's big concerns. The problem with us is that we tend to focus all or most of our attention on everything else. We obsess over things that God has not mentioned and may never mention and spend little little time on the things that God has already revealed to us in his word. To love kindness, to walk humbly with God, to do justice. So that's problem number one. 
is we focus all of our attention on non-moral issues. Problem number two to this conventional approach to determining God's will or thinking about God's will is that it implies that we have a sneaky God who is holding out on us. Are there mysteries in our faith? Certainly. Are, are there things that we don't know, can't know, and wouldn't understand even if God told us? Sure. But God isn't sneaky. He doesn't hide things from us. He's not trying to confuse you. The conventional approach to finding God's will implies not only that he hides his will from us, but that he expects us to figure it out and find it out. So we obsess over God's will of direction and eventually get frustrated with him for not showing us what he wants, something he never promised us to begin with. All the while, he's given us all we need for life and godliness in his word. That's 2 Peter 1, 3. So problem number two is that it implies we have a sneaky God. Problem number three in this conventional approach to finding God's will is that it encourages a preoccupation with the future. Hard truth time. I don't think this is as much of a problem at Redeemer Church. I'm not ragging on you. I'm not really ragging on anybody. But some of the ways that many Christians treat God's will is no different than how you might treat a horoscope. Our preoccupation with the will of God often betrays our lack of trust in God's promises and his provision. We don't just want his word that he'll be with us. We want to know what tomorrow will bring instead of being content with simple obedience. We want him to show us the end from the beginning and prove to us that he can be trusted when he's already done that on the cross and in his resurrection. The way DeYoung puts this, is, puts this is that we want to live out the future before it gets here. And then he challenges us by pointing us to a passage in the book of James, sometimes called the wisdom book of the New Testament. That's James 4, 13 through 15. I'll read that one for us. James 4, 13 through 15 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. For what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Now, every time I've studied this verse in a Bible study on James or I've heard someone pastor talk about it, I get 15 minutes on that verse 15. So, oh, well, should we always, every time you make, say something, should you go out and say, if the Lord wills? But what's the point of this passage? What's, the, what's James trying to get at here? We must live our lives believing that all of the plans and ideas and strategies that we, that, are, that we have are subject to the will of God. Therefore, we should be humble in looking to the future because we don't control it. And again, if it's God who controls it and God who knows all things, that should comfort those of us who trust in him because we're in Christ. So those are three issues with it. There are, there are others that we could list here. I'll let you read the book if you want to read the rest. Friends, there's a, there's a better way. There's a better way, praise God. And that way is to trust God with your life and believe that he has already expressed his will for you in his word. You don't need extra revelation. You don't need more than what you already have in his word and through the power of his spirit. He expresses this in some passages that we've already looked at, but there are many others. Listen to the words of Jesus. Like We like listening to Jesus, right? I want to hear what he has to say about this. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. I'm going to read this for us. Matthew 6, 25 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat 
or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and let yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he not clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The big picture here is pretty simple. Jesus does not want us to worry about the future. God knows what we need. De Young writes, We must fight to believe that God has mercy for today's troubles, and no matter what may come tomorrow, that God will have new mercies for tomorrow's troubles. I love that. He says this is a fight. We have to fight to believe this. Friends, I recognize this is not easy. I recognize that many of you in the room struggle mightily with anxiety and worry each week, maybe each day, maybe each hour. Trust that the Lord will sustain you. Go to him. He longs to bring that joy and peace. And of course, he can bring that peace in so many ways through a variety of means, but none of those means, whether it's counseling, whether it's medication, coffee with a trusted friend, prayer with a pastor, an elder, all those things are great provisions that God has made for us that God can use. But I think often if we're honest, a lot of times what we want God to do, and we pray for him to help us with these things, we say, God, help me not feel this way. Help me get out of this. God brings that thing into our life. And then we say, thanks God, now I'm good. I've got this. None of these things apart from the power and presence of God, has the power to overcome anxiety, depression, apart from the presence of God. Believe that this morning. Okay, so in light of all of that, and I know it was a lot, I wanted to leave you with something uh, practical. I don't always need to jump to practical things, but I think it's helpful for this. This sermon has been really high, conceptual stuff, theoretical. Let's take some of these ideas and let's run them through some scenarios. So I've got a slide for you that they're going to put up. Uh, I didn't make this. Some of you guys know Jeff Wiesner. Some of you guys read Von Roberts' book. This is kind of from a combination of their, some of their thoughts. Uh, I'm going to run a few scenarios through this. So one we kind of started already. Uh, you're a Christian, and somebody who is not a Christian asks you to marry them. Uh, should you do it? Should you not? This one should pretty much immediately, as we've already said, stop at question number one. Because yes, it seems forbidden in Scripture. Question number one. Is it expressly commanded? Forbidden in Scripture. However, as it says in the subtext, many of these things don't fit neatly into, a, into one of those categories. So if that's the case, we can continue down. Now, I want to, again, I want to walk you through this. So let's make this question and this scenario a little bit more difficult uh, or more complicated. You're a Christian. A non-Christian wants to date you. They want to date you exclusively, romantically. 
What should you do in that situation? What decision should you make? Well, newsflash here, dating was not around in the Bible. So it doesn't seem as though in the Bible it's explicitly forbidden or commanded. So you, I think in this situation you can move past question number one. Question number two, will your conscience allow it? Will it be obedient and God-honoring? Now, this one's a bit tricky. Questions of conscience are not always easy to, to think about and discern. Uh, and your conscience may be clean about doing something. You might be doing it for right or wrong reasons. It's all hard to say. Conscience will allow more lenience or more strictness or, um, or adherence depending on the circumstance, right? This is actually where a ton of disagreement among Christians gets put into because we understand that there's not always a neat answer in the Bible and we move down to the matter of conscience. Um, this, so a ton of disagreement happens, so many subjects. I don't have time to get into it today, this morning. But if you ever have questions about this, I, want, I encourage you to go read 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through 33. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 33 is where we get the clearest instruction about this question, about matters of conscience. And if you read that and have questions, uh, you can email mcaswell at redeemerdenton.com, and he would love to talk to you about it. That's not me. Uh, let's say, theoretically, for the sake of this discussion, uh, moving through regret, let's say our conscience allows it. We can date this person who's, who's not a Christian. Then you should ask, is this wise and well-informed? Sub-question, does it discourage or encourage me to grow in a love for God, a love for others, and to grow in holiness? Now, this is where, on this question, if I was advising you, I would say no. You dating a non-Christian romantically exclusively is probably not wise and well-informed. Why might I say that? Because you're starting a process, dating, which at its most basic foundation is meant to be an evaluative process to decide if you're going to be married or not. And you're beginning this process. Again, that's the question about dating. Is this the kind of person I should marry or not? But if that person isn't a Christian, the answer, as we've already discussed, ought to be no. So you're beginning a process that you can't, that you already know the ending to. So asking this question and framing dating this way is, of course, not, I'm not speaking like the word of God here. Uh, this, is, uh, this is not um, always a super clear matter. This is just my perspective on how to apply God's words and God's principles on this. It doesn't seem that would be a wise decision based on biblical principles. That's the thing about this question of conscience and wisdom. Christians can and do disagree on certain things, and that's okay. At the end of the day, some things are up for debate, and we need to be okay with that. We need to hold uh, the core doctrines of Christianity, orthodoxy, we need to hold that tightly, but there's all kinds of questions that we are free to disagree upon. One more scenario, and then I'm going to get off the stage. Okay, so you get a dream job in your dream city. Do you take the job? Probably a Hopefully a question we all get, uh, have to answer someday. We get a job offer, and maybe, one, maybe not your dream job, but maybe one that you really like. But let's say, let's say in this scenario, it's a dream job, dream city. Do you take it? Okay, is it expressly commanded or forbidden in the Bible? Well, no, right? This is an amoral decision. This isn't about doing something right, doing something wrong. This is just a decision that you're making about where you should live. Question number two, will your conscience allow it? Now, you might have some biases or convictions against a certain place, a certain area, uh, I thought about this long and hard, and I think in, in, most, in most situations, this isn't really a matter of conscience, okay? Go back to the passage in 1 Corinthians to talk about what that actually looks like. So let's just say, we're moving forward, your conscience will allow a yes or, a yes or no decision on this. You move forward. Okay, is it wise and well-advised? This is what I was talking about earlier, where it's, it's good that we think long and hard about 
even, even though this is a non-moral decision, we should still weigh pros and cons. As Christians, we don't just weigh pros and cons from a sheer practical standpoint, right? We also weigh it from a spiritual one. Does it encourage or discourage me to grow in love for God, love for others, and to grow in holiness? So, is your dream city Las Vegas? Okay, that might be fine. We need Christians to live in Las Vegas. We need churches ministering to people who are made in the image of God that live in Las Vegas. There's nothing sinful about living in Sin City, per se. But do you have a gambling addiction? If so, it's probably not a wise decision for you to move to Las Vegas. You probably would not grow in your love for God, a love for others, and growth and holiness. You ought to probably not to take a job in Las Vegas if you have gambling problems. You are inviting more gambling problems. Thought number two in this, do you have a tendency to drink too much? Are you bordering on alcoholism? Are you actually an alcoholic? Well, of course, that can be a problem anywhere you live. You can live near a liquor store all over the place. You probably shouldn't take a job in New York City where you're going to walk by three bars and two liquor stores on your way to and from work. That's probably not going to help you grow in a love for God, a love for others, and growth in holiness. You ought not probably to take a job bartending if you're an alcoholic. These are just wisdom decisions that we're thinking through. Is this going to help me grow in a love for God, love for others, and grow in holiness? Let's say you've done that, okay? You're walking through this step. You finally say you've Pick the city, whatever city is. There's no problem with your conscience. There's, it seems like a wise and well-informed decision. You've asked other believers in your life, perhaps. You've prayed. You've talked about it with your spouse. You've seen what they think about it. Get to this question, do you want to do it? Okay, this is maybe groundbreaking news here. Uh, but if you've walked through these questions, you've weighed your options, you've carefully thought about it, just make a decision. God does not, is not obligated to pave a yellow brick road in front of you on the way to where he wants you to be. Can God speak to you in different ways about how this might happen? I mean, yeah, he might. He hasn't promised you that he will. You have what you need in his word to make a wise and informed decision on this. So you made a decision, yes or no. Notice that it says, it does not say, okay, now you better say yes to everything. No, it says you could do it. Or maybe you shouldn't do it. You are not under an obligation to move if you don't want to. Is that like shocking news here? Nowhere in the Bible does it say, God, God, nowhere in the Bible does God say, thou shalt wait on me to draw an arrow in the sky pointing you to your next job. You can look in there. I haven't seen it. We don't need extra, extra revelation from him. And to insist that we do, to say, God, you, haven't, you just haven't made it clear. You haven't made my will clear. You're real clear enough in my life. Is to say, thanks for the Bible, but it's really not enough. I, I, need, I need more from you. God's word is sufficient for us, for all we need in life and godliness. I wish that I had more time with you this morning. I know there's more nuance. There's things I left out, certainly. Um, but I hope that this has been encouraging for you this morning. I hope it's left you hungry for thinking about these things. If you want uh, more on it, just pick up that Kevin DeYoung book that I mentioned. I put a print-off copy of this chart on the back table back there. So if you want to have a more close look at it, um, it's there for you. Uh, I want to close this morning with something very, very profound, uh, which is reading the Bible. So Ecclesiastes 12, 11 through 14. And I'll leave this with you. Ecclesiastes 12. 11 through 14. The words of the wise are like goads, 
And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything else beyond these. Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. And the student said, Amen. That was me. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you this morning for your word. We're thankful that you you have spoken clearly to us in the words of Scripture. Empowered and people were empowered and moved by the Holy Spirit to write down what it is that you would have for us to know about who you are, the way you work, your character, your nature, even what you would have for us to do. Help us as we seek to live this out. Help us to not worry about tomorrow. Help us to trust you with today. Help us to trust you with tomorrow. Lord, we acknowledge that that isn't always easy. So we know we need the help by the power of your spirit. And we, I ask that you would um, move in the lives of these that have heard this this morning. I pray that it's been edifying and glorifying to you. Um, Lord, we ask as we move into the rest of our time of worship, you continue to be with us. We love you and we trust you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.